Welcome back, everybody, to the OBG Med Student Podcast. This podcast is designed for medical students that are currently on the OB-GYN clerkship. Today, we have a guest that will be discussing the normal and abnormal uterine bleeding. This is educational topic number 45 on your APGO learning objectives and can be accessed at www.apgo.org backslash students. Also, if you wanted to follow along in your textbook, this is chapter 39 in the 8th edition of the Beckman and Ling textbook, which can be accessed through the George T. Harrell Library. With that, let's introduce our guest for today. This is Dr. Amy Cruz. Dr. Amy Cruz is a generalist OB-GYN here at the Hershey Medical Center, and today she will help us work through a case. Welcome, Dr. Cruz. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so this is the case. We have a 45-year-old G2P0020, and her last menstrual period was 21 days ago. Now she's presenting with heavy menstrual bleeding. She states that for her entire life, her periods had been normal, but up until about six months ago, her menses have changed, and they now occur every 25 to 32 days, lasting 7 to 10 days, and associated with cramps not relieved by ibuprofen. She also reports passing clots and using two boxes of maxi pads per cycle. She denies dizziness but complains of feeling weak and fatigued. Her weight has not changed in the last year. She denies any bleeding disorders or reproductive cancers in her family, and she uses condoms for contraception. She does not have any medical problems and does not take any medications. She's married and works in a factory, but she's really worried that she's going to lose her job if she continues to bleed this way. On physical exam, her weight is 150 pounds. She is 5 feet 6 inches. Her blood pressure is 130 over 88, and her heart rate is 100. 100. She appears pale, though. On pelvic exam, there is a normal external vulva, normal vagina, normal appearing cervix, the uterus is a normal size, non-tender, freely mobile, and the adnexa is without any tenderness and no palpable masses. Dr. Cruz, I just wanted to review for our listeners, what are some of the normal parameters for the menstrual cycle? So the normal interval is 21 to 35 days with an average of 28 days. Typically, menses last two to seven days with an average of five days, and the volume is usually less than 80 milliliters with an average of 35. Dr. Cruz, could you just briefly review the phases of the menstrual cycle for us? Sure, so the menstrual cycle can be divided into two portions. From the, um, looking at the endometrium, the cycle consists of the proliferative phase and the secretory phase. Looking at the ovary, the cycle is composed of the follicular phase and the luteal phase, and uh, the the two phases are demarcated by ovulation. The proliferative phase corresponds with the follicular phase in the ovary, and the secretory phase corresponds with the luteal phase in the ovary. That makes perfect sense. So could you walk us through the menstrual cycle then, starting on day one? Absolutely. So day one is the first day of bleeding. In a 28-day cycle, ovulation occurs on day 14. During early follicular phase, increasing FSH levels drive the growth of the cohort of follicles. The increase in follicles drives a a corresponding increase in estradiol, and then as estradiol increases, the endometrium proliferates and hypertrophies in response. FSH decreases in response to the negative inhibitory effect of estradiol, and as a result, the follicle, which is most sensitive to FSH, becomes dominant, continuing to secrete estradiol. 
this is the follicle that is destined for ovulation. The increasing levels of estradiol then cause the LH surge, which signals ovulation or release of the oocyte. So then what happens after ovulation occurs? The corpus luteum is then formed at the ovulation site and produces progesterone. This progesterone transforms the endometrium to make it receptive to implantation. If pregnancy does not occur, then the corpus luteum undergoes atresia with a uh, uh, resulting decrease in progesterone. This progesterone withdrawal then causes the endometrium to shed. The decreasing progesterone also allows FSH to begin rising again and then collect a new cohort of follicles to develop and the cycle of restarts. Got it. All right. So then what would be the definition of abnormal uterine bleeding then? So anything that is outside of the normal parameters of a normal menstrual cycle. So um, heavy menstrual bleeding being longer than seven days or heavy than um, 80 milliliters per cycle. Um, intermenstrual ble bleeding being bleeding in between cycles. Oligomenorrhea is a greater than 35 day cycle. And then postcoital bleeding is bleeding um, after intercourse outside of the cycle. Dr. Cruz, thank you for that explanation. So in my research, I've stumbled on the acronym Palm Coin to describe all the possible reasons that women may experience abnormal uterine bleeding. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Palm Coin means? Sure. So Palm Cohen is a, an acronym we use to describe the causes for abnormal uterine bleeding. So Palm refers to structural causes and Cohen refers to other um, non-structural causes. So the P stands for polyp, A stands for adenomyosis, L stands for leiomyoma, M stands for malignancy or hyperplasia. So those are the structural causes. As far as non-structural causes, C stands for coagulopathy, O is ovulatory dysfunction, E is endometrial causes, which most of these are hormonal related, um, I is at iatrogenic, and N is not yet classified. Dr. Cruz, the structural causes all make sense to me. Um, could we talk a little bit about the non-structural causes and specifically ovulatory dysfunction? Sure. So some ovulatory dysfunction uh, causes could be related to things like uh, PCOS or polycystic ovaries. Um, hyperprolactinemia can cause issues, thyroid disorder, premature, premature ovarian failure, um, or iatrogenic causes or medications. Uh, okay. And so I guess in this category, there'd be like hypothalamic dysfunction too in patients, for example, that are uh, low weight, low BMI, or who are experiencing extreme stress or something like that too. Exactly, yeah. Perfect. Um, so what is the mechanism of anovulatory bleeding? So anovulatory bleeding occurs with a, a progesterone withdrawal. This signals the endometrium to shed in a uniform way by creating spiral artery spasm. Women who do not ovulate don't experience this progesterone withdrawal because they don't form a corpus luteum and usually have bleeding related to unopposed estrogen uh, with either estrogen withdrawal or estrogen excess. Neither of these mechanisms cause spiral artery spasm and therefore can result in non-uniform shedding of the lining at irregular intervals. So then how can you tell if a patient is having ovulatory cycles? So typically this is done by um, history. So history showing ovulatory cycles. So these are regular, um, regular cycles that can be tracked as far as the timing of them. Um, other ways to determine this are timed um, endometrial biopsy in the luteal phase. You can see a secretory endometrium. 
Um, there are also LH surge kits or ovulation predictor kits, which can detect the LH surge and um, show ovulation. And another way is basal body temperature charting with small temperature increase about half of a degree after ovulation. And then a day 21 serum progesterone level is another way to track this. So for our patient, what are some of the appropriate labs that should be ordered? So something you should consider in a patient with abnormal uterine bleeding always first is a pregnancy test. You never want to miss pregnancy as a cause of abnormal uterine bleeding. Other things to think about are a CBC, is she anemic from this bleeding? Um, looking at TSH and prolactin for causes of abnormal bleeding. Um, pelvic ultrasound can be helpful looking for structural causes. And then always have a low suspicion for uh, hyperplasia or malignancy. You could consider an endometrial biopsy in um, women who have risk factors or women who are over 40 with this abnormal bleeding. All right, so our patient actually had some of these labs done, Dr. Cruz, and her hemoglobin came back at 9.0 with a hematocrit of 27%. Her pregnancy test was in fact negative, and her thyroid and prolactin levels were normal. An endometrial biopsy was performed and it did show normal secretor endometrium. A pelvic ultrasound was also performed and showed a normal sized uterus with heterogeneous myometrium and a lining that was 1.4 centimeters and irregular consistent with an endometrial polyp. What further tests would you order based on these results? So you could do a few things. If you're suspicious for an endometrial polyp, there are a few non-invasive tests you could do, or less invasive, I should say. Um, so this would be a fluid um, sauna histogram where you do an ultrasound and distend the cavity with fluid so that you could actually identify the polyp. Um, sometimes this is also visualized with a hysterosalpingogram, which is a fluoroscopy test um, to show irregularities in the cavity. Um, the final option would be a diagnostic diagnostic hysteroscopy um, where you would actually be able to visualize and potentially resect the polyp. Dr. Cruz, could you discuss other potential treatment options for similar patients that present with abnormal uterine bleeding? Sure. So there are uh, medical options that you could consider. So these would be things as simple as oral contraceptive pills. Um, some women choose to do cyclical progesterone just to regulate their menses but not be on something continuously. Um, GnRH agonist is always an option as well. Um, high doses of non-steroidals actually does help with uh, heavy menstrual flow and is a non-hormonal option that some women are interested in. Uh, tranexamic acid is another uh, non-hormonal option. It's, this is only taken during the days of heavy bleeding, um, but is also a, an option. Um, levonorgestrel IUDs are also a great option for uh, medical management of heavy menstrual bleeding. So typically for somebody who has a structural abnormality, surgical options would be uh, better suited for uh, treatment rather than the medical management. Got it. So what are some important considerations when counseling the patient and helping her choose the best option for her? So one important thing to consider is fertility. So if the patient desires fertility still in the future, um, her treatment options need to be catered to that desire. So um, things that would permanently impair her ability to become pregnant or carry a pregnancy would be important to consider. Um, additionally, you should think about um, how permanent of a solution the patient desires. If she just wants something to uh, make her uh, daily activities more manageable, that could be different th than somebody who never wants to deal with this problem ever again. 
Um, additionally, you should think about operative risks. So patients who have significant medical comorbidities or who are severely anemic may not be safe for surgery right now and um, may need to have medical management first before they can undergo operative measures safely. One last thing to think about is the uh, duration until menopause. So someone who is um, more likely to go through menopause in the near future may have different goals than uh, somebody who has a long time until menopause, and your management options may vary based on that. Dr. Cruz, thank you so very much for joining us today. This has been so enlightening. I've learned so much about abnormal uterine bleeding. I hope our listeners have too. We look forward to talking with you more in the future on other topics. Thank you again. Thanks so much.